Welcome to another episode of Econo Politics. Hi, I'm Fabrizio Chagas Bastos in Sao Paulo, and I'll be your co-host for today's show. And I'm Joseph Marx in Los Angeles. Econo Politics is the official podcast of LASA's Economics and Politics section, where we engage section members, international practitioners, and new voices from the region. Today's guest is Sean Burgess from Carter University in Ottawa, Canada. We have a very opportunity to discuss Sean's current research and get a Canadian perspective on Latin America. So um, welcome, Sean. Great to see you. Uh, it's been a while. Has. Great to have you with us here at Econ Politics. So tell us, what does the current Canada LATAM agenda look like at the moment? I'm going to wind up saying the same thing, I think, over and over to a lot of questions, that everything is pretty much up in the air and stalled right out because of COVID-19. So in terms of what's been going on in Canada, the most highly visible Latin American-related issue has been the treatment of migrant labor from uh, Central America and Mexico and the spread of COVID-19 through migrant labor populations in Southern Ontario and BC, because the, the reality is that the way the agricultural model is set up in Canada, uh, particularly in areas with uh, a lot of fresh fruit, like tomatoes down in Southwest Ontario and, and the fruit picking in BC, it the economy doesn't work without the migrant labor. So the big question has been, how do we bring people in safely? How do we bring them in through the protective closed border protocols that have been put in place. And then when they've been here, there's been some really horrific outbreaks of COVID-19 through these, these individuals so through in the farms they've been working in. So how do you manage that? So that, that's been the one that's been big and front and center. Anything that you see going on over the next two years is almost certainly going to involve consideration of COVID-19 and biosecurity because we're like every other country in the world <laughs> that, that we're deeply concerned about it. You know, as, as you know, Fabrizio, there seems to be some real restrictions in the exchange of materials between places like Brazil and Canada, because you know the book that you were trying to send on to me that the uh, Correos returned because they said we can't send anything to Canada. So there's, there's also issues with traveling and, and just shipping materials back and forth. So that's kind of the COVID scenario at the moment. I think if we take, uh, a little bit of a more medium-term look to going back to life as normal. The rumors such as that I've heard them are that the Canada-Mercosur free trade agreement talks are still on the table, although that tends to, it seems to get talked about as Canada-Brazil, which is of course not possible under the Mercosur framework. So that's still there, except it's probably dead in the water until Bolsonaro clears out of the way, because he's really not into this liberal agenda. And you know, when you have a liberal government in a country like Canada, I'm not sure he'll be able to fully process through the semantics of what the language means. And recently there's been talk about a Canada-Ecuador free trade agreement. And I think this is kind of the idea that Canada just wants to have FTAs with whoever they can. Objectively, when you look at it on paper, most of this stuff makes no sense because the trade volumes are really low. Is it really worth putting the effort into negotiating them? But if we take an assumption that a major part of these FTAs is going to include investment protection provisions, then all of a sudden they make an awful lot of sense because the, the movers and shakers in the Canadian economy, the resource extraction companies, the agricultural companies, but particularly the gold mining, oil mining and all that kind of stuff, 
they have major presence in, in, in the Americas. So they're going to want to have mechanisms that can protect the, their foreign direct investment. So I think that that's the major front that we see. Other than that, you know, it's the classic story of kind of benign indifference. Um, there's there's not a lot of tension in, in many ways. We, you know, we're going into winter here. I'm looking at the white snow out my window. And when I go and buy my asparagus, my avocados this weekend, asparagus will be from Peru, the avocados from Mexico, the raspberries from Chile. You know, that's it's the, the uh, complementary trade model. So I think uh, expecting anything really exciting is unlikely. Venezuela possibly could pop up, depending what's going on. But it doesn't, you know, again, it's the domestic politics. Their parliament's not, is sitting, but not in its entirety. You can't have the committee meetings because we can't put more than three people in a room together because of COVID. So the consultation process is slowed down. So all of the tension and the the push on addressing Venezuela has sort of been pushed under by the the overriding presence of COVID-19. When COVID-19 starts to push out of the way, we're going to have major budget headaches to sort out. And then the question will be, is there the political will to engage in putting pressure on someone like Maduro? From a security perspective, we probably absolutely have to because of the way that regime operates. But will there be the the presence in, in Ottawa and the pressure in Ottawa to, to make this something lasting? Um, that's a different different question. So let me pick up on something you've just said. You mentioned the mining, the, the constructivist industry in Canada. Do you think that the environment would be a concern for this Canada-Mercosur agreement? Because this is basically the central point from the EU to get back to the table and say, look, we're going to deny it. France is rejecting it, specifically Macron is rejecting it, uh, the Netherlands passed some motions against um, the agreement because of specifically Bolsonaro's environmental policy. So do you think that will be an issue for Canadians? Yeah, that's an interesting one. So to the extent to which Canadians might pay attention, it could be. But whether anybody's actually going to pay a great deal of attention to the FTA is another question entirely. And, you know, the, like any Canadian government, it doesn't really matter its stripes, is in kind of a conflicted position because, our, you know, oil is a central part of the Canadian economy. So you have, you know, almost a perfect correlation between oil prices and uh, the value of the Canadian dollar. And the way we extract oil in Alberta is not environmentally friendly. It is dirty and it uses up huge amounts of water and pollutes like crazy. So there's a lot of risk in any Canadian government standing up and making a lot of noise about we're not doing a deal because of the environment, what's going on in the Amazon, because they know that right away um, the other side is going to turn around and talk about northern Alberta and Saskatchewan and, and the devastation there. The question really is, is there enough political will and bureaucratic will in Ottawa to keep driving an FTA with Mercosur forward? And as much as we'd want to say that the environment could be the major barrier, um, keep in mind that Canada has a feminist foreign policy, explicitly so, which is, I would say, almost completely antithetical to everything that's coming out of the mouth of official Brazil at the moment, out of Bolsonaro's mouth and out of uh, Arujo's. So 
the idea of getting Deputy Prime Minister Christopher Freeland to sit down or Justin Trudeau to sit down with the Brazilian counterparts to to do these days, it's not happening. Right? You're just not going to be able to get people in Ottawa, I think, to to engage with somebody who mouths the kind of um, xenophobic, racist, homophobic, um, misogynistic tripe that, that we hear from, from Bolsonaro. And it's not really, unfortunately, much better out of Arujo, out of the Itamarati at the moment. He's a little more cultured about it, but he's towing the line, which as a minister you're supposed to. But that's probably a bigger barrier to going forward with stuff than the environment. Thanks, Sean. Well, let's let's move on to the, the Canadian presence in the region. Are there regional issues or institutions where Canada has shown leadership? What are the examples of Canadian soft power in the region? Soft power. <laughs> so you, you remind me when I was working as a the Cadio Leger fellow at Foreign Affairs and International Trade doing some work on democratization and they were looking at uh, parts of Central America and the Caribbean at the time. And you know some of the old hands said, no, no, you have to talk to IDRC, you have to talk to these people because the reason there was a democratic transition in Brazil and Chile was because of the work that IDRC did. And I was looking at them thinking, I, I think you might be overplaying our contribution a little bit here. But the, you know, the idea of the soft power back then was that Canada was a very forceful voice for human rights and for democratization and that Canada contribute really meaningful resources to help support this. Now, I think just to say that, you know, any claim that Canada made it happen, I think is poppycock. Um, but you know, Sebrap in uh, Sao Paulo, I think, but Cardoso was running it, was getting IDRC money. And I think Seplan, uh, I think it was, in, in Santiago was getting money. And IDRC still has regional offices in Montevideo. So we've done a lot of good work there. Democracy is supposed to be coming back on the agenda. So I think we could see engagement on how to strengthen inclusive democratic practices, particularly on gender rights uh, and um, uh, gender rights and sexuality rights will be part of it, would, would get pushed and soft power side. On the education front, it's it's a big deal. Um, I don't think anybody's done a great deal of work on this uh, in terms of public publishing the data and, and going over it. I've done a couple of papers on the Australian side of the coin, um, and I know that uh, Ted Hewitt, who is the president of the Social Science and Humanities Research Council of Canada, in his spare time has been looking at some of the numbers to do with Latin American students coming into Canada. And that's a major income earner, but you know, as, as we all know that when you bring students in from abroad into your country, into your institution, you acculturate them and you partially reprogram their brain. And we kind of out you here a little bit Fabrizio, but we, we have a bit of an example of this going on is that you're talking to me partly because you spent time at Carleton and got pushed towards me. And so you've got these linkages in place as opposed to talking to, say, Andres Malamud, if you had gone to do that gap year in Lisbon. So there, there is some awareness of this, and I think you'll see the, the support for that continue on. Venezuela is going to, it's still there. I don't know, I don't know what they're going to do in that respect. The advice that the, pol the policy side got from a number of Latin Americanists in the academy in Canada 
was what you're doing to support democratization in Venezuela is a very good idea. It's a very good thing. You add important resources and you add an important moral voice behind it. But if you really want to build relationships with the region, your best bet is to follow their lead. And when nobody's taking a lead, find out what they would think would be the lead should be and to put that forward. Because the region, after all, does know how to manage democratic transitions far better than Canada. And it's got the experience. So I think you'll see engagement on that front, but not while COVID-19 is going on, because that is going to take up all the energy that's available. Um, and it's just logistical. Um, projections are that the civil service, that I've heard from some people, is gonna, will be working from home until December 2021. So we're doing remote working, which we could do lots with Zoom as we are here, but it starts to cut down on how you can do those sort of quiet strategic chats over coffee or as you're, you know, walking to, you know, the, one of the most fascinating things in Ottawa sometimes is to ride that bus that goes out to where the foreign ministry is. And if you really know what's happening, you get little snippets. So. We're going to get there, Sean. We're going to get there. So you've just told I had my brain reprogrammed when I went to, to Canada. So let me bring Joe as a more independent voice to our <laughs> talk today. <laughs> <laughs> Sean, um, let's get your thoughts on a few specific issues, uh, and in particular three, Venezuela, Brazil, and Paraguay. Um, anything new on that, on these fronts that you'd like to comment on? So we all have our ways of finding news stories. And one of the things that I use um, is I, I look at Yahoo Finance every day. Uh, mostly just you know to see where a couple of stock prices are and where the price of oil is and because of the way the cookies are set up on my computer venezuela is obviously tagged in the background so i get these stories kicked up from the financial press about what's going on in venezuela and it's starting to sound an awful lot like the entire oil industry there is just about to collapse that pdvsa is having massive troubles paying the uh the fees needed to transport oil, and it's getting to the point where it can't buy, it can't afford to buy the inputs to be able to keep the fields running. Um, there was a story this week about people being arrested effectively on treason charges or something like that for criticizing the operation of the PDVSA and exposing the problems that are going on. That's kind of the golden goose. So if that goes down in flames, so to speak, then the input the income that's required from that to keep the Maduro regime running starts to collapse, which takes us to the next bit that's really scary about why Venezuela is a major issue to be watching. There is a Netflix series called Dirty Money. And one of the episodes, I think it's the series, is on gold. And it's on the Miami smelters that will process gold from wherever it comes in from. And what they're doing is they're processing, they look primarily at Peru, examples that they give and the case study that they follow but it's the same process in Venezuela there's all kinds of wildcat mining out in the middle of nowhere which is destroying the environment which is displacing indigenous and local populations and just creating chaos and it's unregulated or it's regulated by uh, non-state systems shall we say like mafias or the armed forces and, and mafias within it which means you have income sources that are supporting the actors that support Maduro that are independent of anything else happening in the economy, which is completely antithetical 
to any kind of uh, representative system that reflects the interests of Venezuelans. So you've got a ruling group that seems to be pushing further and further away of any kind of need to connect to the population, which is a really astonishingly bad scenario for what was one of the leading countries in the region. I mean, we haven't even talked about the implications of narco-trafficking in that. So Venezuela's, it's growing into a bigger and bigger problem. And I, I don't know what the solution is because sovereignty is such an important norm. And pretty much every alternative that you follow seems to require an abdication of sovereignty and maybe the way forward is to do things that are have to happen in the past in other areas that seem unthinkable buy off maduro buy off the people around them let them move to panama or to spain and you know and enjoy their their billions and you know as we saw with the transition model we'll worry about the rest of it 10 years down the line but let's first of all restore some stability to the country brazil and paraguay yeah, it's going to be an interesting one because Paraguay seems to have a much more responsible approach to COVID than Brazil. <laughs> so you've got a bit of a a reversal of fortunes there, and and the Paraguayans looking at the Brazilians and going, nope. <laughs> so Brazil's turning it into kind of an epidemiological cesspool is really the only way to put it. Like the the total irresponsibility with the management of COVID nineteen means that it's just dangerous for anybody to interact with the country in almost any form at all and you know even though we've got these vaccines coming you know a country like canada with an is you know similar in physical size and complications of distribution even if it's not as many people we're looking at two years to distribute the vaccine and get everybody inoculated um and we don't have all of the structural constraints that a country like Brazil does, particularly the extent to which, you know, resources seem to vanish off the balance sheet. So that, that's going to be a, be a major headache for Brazil. I mean, ironically, Paraguay might be able to respond better because it's smaller. So there's a much more personalized connection between political elites and the people. It's much easier to get, get that linkage. The other issue that will come up between Brazil and Paraguay, which is a huge one, um, is Itaipu. And that treaty is being renegotiated. I know Miguel Carter is putting together a very interesting edited volume right now on uh, it's going to come out in Spanish, I think, and hopefully online free in some format on uh, the Itaipu Treaty and where it's come from, the costs, implications and ideas and suggestions for the Paraguayans and the renegotiation of it. But if you know the Paraguayans are doing their due diligence properly, they're going to have some extremely aggressive, um, direct uh, negotiators, so that they can fully capitalize on that 50% of the power that comes from the dam. And you know that's 12.5% of Brazil's electricity supply, and you could be looking at an instantaneous tripling or quadrupling in, in the cost of that if they go with market rates as opposed to the artificially suppressed rates. Uh, that are in the current treaty. And that, that's going to be a huge economic shock. So, Sean, you were previously in Australia and now back in Canada for a few years. So I wonder, in your opinion, what is the current state of Latin American studies in Canada? 
And are there any centers of excellence or a specific department doing interesting work regarding Latin America in the broad field of either poli-sci, public policy, economics, et cetera? Not, not to sound too conspiratorial, it's a secret. <laughs> I, I think, you know, and, and I, it's kind of a joke, but I think that might be the best way to describe Latin American studies in Canada right now, it's a secret. You know, there is an awful lot of really interesting work going on. I'm, I'm thinking, you know, right off the bat, Jean Daudelin, a colleague at Carleton, is doing really interesting stuff on property rights frontiers and drug trafficking. Uh, Christina Rojas has been doing, again at Carleton, has been doing great work on, um, excuse me, on indigenous politics in, in Bolivia. Um, Pablo Hedrick is working on lithium mining. Laura McDonald is continuing her long string of work on civil society in Mexico and, and politics. I mean, it's all good work. Uh, University of Ottawa blowing up myths with Paul Haslam's work on Canadian mining companies, finding that they're actually positive factors for corporate social responsibility, not negative, when you, depending on the size of the mine that you look at. And that's just Ottawa. I mean, it spreads as you go across the country. That's all sorts of really interesting projects underway from a wide variety of perspectives but it's that it's the same problem Lassa has it's the same problem that we area studies people have discipline wide when you go to make your assessments on these ranking systems they're based on journals and they're based on particular kinds of inputs and what is important to the journal is your methodological innovation and your theoretical reinvention. So yeah, I mean, we're all going to do that at some point <laughs> as a scholar, right? But the expectation that you constantly be doing this, it, it leads to a particular kind of scholarship, which is sort of antithetical to area studies. What we do with area studies is we tend to get down in the weeds and get to know a great deal of detail about what's going on. And so the kind of papers that we want to write don't necessarily appear with a regular basis in the kind of uh, publications that are sought out by rankings chasers. So, I mean, that, that, I think that's part of the issue that's at play. What that does is it devalues, in effect, empirical knowledge and depth of empirical knowledge on particular situations. And I went through this in a major way with the, the Australian context. I think the same is, I don't think it's as bad in Canada, but you, you get this, it's, it's the drive towards hyper-specialization we have across all disciplines. So you, you get the, a push away from, if you will, the storytelling aspect of what, what we do or the ability to tell the stories with added analytical and comparative heft, because that, that's what we bring with the theory and the methods that we bring as scholars, uh, is what sets us apart from journalists. And we have more time to produce, so we can do things in a different way. And we used to be extraordinarily good at it as a discipline. If you go back and look historically at who went to the LASA meetings, you know, the major decision makers from the State Department, from the Pentagon, from the CIA, from the Foreign Office, they would all go to Lhasa. Now they still go to the, a lot of them still go to ISA, but they don't go to Lhasa so much anymore. Partly because we've all become hyper-specialized. I think there's also been a very strong push to the left with how we think in the discipline. Um, 
I mean, arguably, if you learn how to read and do an analysis, you automatically drift a little bit to the left because you tend to be more critical of the establishment. But in Canada, this is particularly reflect reflected in the uh, Canadian Association for Latin American and Caribbean Studies an annual conferences. They used to be huge things where all the big policy wonks would come visiting politicians from the region would make sure to route their trips through so they could come and speak at this event and meet with people at the event. It's not happening anymore. So we're in this weird contradictory space where there are a lot of excellent scholars doing excellent work. But we have a structural organizational problem and it could just come down to that the institutional incentives that are in place now for career advancement career solidification mitigate against doing the kinds of things that someone like Abraham Lowenthal did of bringing the people together so um, is the patient certainly not dying the patient certainly not in trouble um, the patient is a little bit, I would say, adrift. And I don't mean that we need a coordinated process, but it we're secret, right? It's we're, we're, we're like these surprise secrets you find. So, Sean, to start wrapping up today's show, could you give us a panorama of hemispherical relations in this post-Trump era? It's completely speculative, so you'd be free to go wild if you want so let me let me abuse your question if i will if i may for sure and rather than giving you a panorama let me give you a proposition from what because we don't know what biden's going to do yet right we've got no, we don't i mean we know that we know that for biden that foreign policy is about relationships so you need to talk to the man you need to get one of our one of our discussions in Ottawa when you shared the department at ANU, I remember one of the first classes, and you told me, actually not only me, the entire theater, saying, international relations in Latin America are based on people. People matter. Someone is calling Sean. You told us that people matter. So, do you think that because I are or the Department of State for Biden is based on people. Relations are based on people. Things are going to change anything from the U.S. Latin Latin American relations. Well, people matter. Leadership matters. You and I have explored this in the context of Brazil, right, and published on that. And I mean, that's that's a no-brainer. And I think we could say that Trump is enormously destructive. He doesn't really care. He's not been particularly artful. Um, what I've read recently about Biden is that. He, came, he perhaps puts too much weight on his personal relationship and personal feel and interaction. He's got people who will break him out of that. Um, where it gets really interesting in the Americas is I think what we're going to see with Biden, and he's been making lots of noise about this, is some sort of a Green New Deal idea. And, you know, you, we, are, we are all going to die if we don't get on top of this climate problem. And if you take your classical business school approach, every challenge presents opportunities. And I think what Biden is looking at is seeing that if we don't do major changes in the technological makeup that we have and how our economy operates, we're doomed. So what we can do is use this process of going to a green economy, an environmentally friendly economy to advancing environmental protection with all the variations that come from that 
this is the opportunity to renew American leadership, American hegemony, if you want to take it in IR terms, to consolidate the American way of life and to position America for another hundred years of unparalleled prosperity. This is exciting for Latin America because if you think about a region that is astonishingly blessed with environmental capital, and that's Latin America. So how do you capture things like uh, closed loop energy systems, like say from biofuels is, is, is a very interesting one to be looking at. How do you protect and take advantage of the possibilities that exist with the Amazon? And remember Amazon, we think Brazil, but it's also Bolivia, Peru, Colombia, Venezuela, Suriname, Guyana, and French Guyana. And push it a bit, Ecuador. Um, they're not touching the Amazon River, but they like to think they do. What kind of opportunities, say, if you want to be doing carbon sinks through replanting forests to be putting trees in the ground? You have vast tracts of Atlantic coastal rainforest in, say, Brazil that were cut down. Can you regenerate that, turn into a resource? So there, there's the Biden administration, I think, will offer enormous potential for forward-looking, green-oriented thinking. And there's some very good grassroots work happening on that in parts of Latin America. And there's also some extremely good research institutes, both private and state sector, that, that can jump on this and, and make some very interesting things happen. It, it's the natural partner. If you have a U.S. concern with the environment, the natural partner is Latin America because the whole place is treed. <laughs> Not to put too fine a point on it. There's huge swaths of forest and untouched environment throughout the region. So the, I think there's a lot of, I don't think anybody can quite tell where Biden's going to go and what it's going to mean to the Americas. Not yet. I mean, we're, he's only just gotten access to the transition funds. But for enterprising public policy figures and business figures in the region, um, I think there's huge opportunity here. If, if they can mobilize a combination of government leadership, grassroots leadership, uh, and the capacity that comes out of research institutes, universities, and, and business. Great. Um, Sean, we have a, a way of ending by asking all our guests to recommend a special place in the region, be it a bar, a cafe, a restaurant, someplace really worthwhile visiting. And uh, we hope eventually to compile a list of recommendations for our members and friends for whenever they travel to these countries. So Sean Burgess, what would you recommend in Ottawa or in the region and why? But the oh. canal, Sean, it's out it's of the list. No chance that you can include the canal. <laughs> All right, so let me give you two. One, one that's going to catch you by surprise and one that possibly won't. Both involved eating really high quality meat, um, which is ironic since I'm cooking vegetarian tonight. Uh, first one, in Australia, in Hobart, Frank Bar and Grill. It's down on the waterfront in central Hobart and it's taking a huge riff off of the the grilling culture from Chile, Argentina, and Peru. And they're doing the same cuts, the same drinks, and I, I'm on their, their social media feed, and it's killing me seeing it because it looks fantastic. Um, so I think that would be one. If you find yourself in Tasmania, which is one of the few places in the world that's COVID-free right now, good place to go. 
And the other one is in Rio. And I, I haven't been to Rio for quite a while now, but um, I assume it's still there because it's been there since the dawn of time. It's Cafe Lamas, which is in, I think, the edge of Flamengo, if I got it right. It's just next to Cateche. And it's this old place, uh, really kind of looks beat up a little bit from the outside. And you, you take a deep breath, walk through the back of the dining room, and they do just fantastic, fantastic Brazilian beef. Uh, and it's not Churrasco style or, you know, Rodizio where they keep dumping it on you. It's the old uh, Brasserie style. Historically, it was a place where all the, the civil servants and the artists, the writers, the economists, the lawyers, and so on, from the presidential palace in the Palazzo de Catece, just down the street, this is where they would go to drink and eat at the end of the day. Now, clearly, that's not happening now, but it's still there doing fabulous food, which during my PhD days, which is when I first started going there, you know, could have these extravagant meals, which with the exchange rate at, you know, eight real to the pound cost me about nothing. Uh, thanks a lot. That was fantastic. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. My pleasure. Uh, to welcome talk you. To you. Welcome you again to Econopolitics and Joe. Thanks for co-hosting the show today. Thanks, John. I didn't. I didn't expect a, a recommendation for uh, Hobart. Um, great to have you on the show. Thank you, and um, please join us again next week for another episode of Econopolitics. See you then.